Well, turn with me to Matthew 11 in your Bibles. Matthew 11, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, and we're picking up in the 11th chapter. As you're turning there, let me say something about my voice. I don't normally talk like this if uh, you have, if this is your first time being here. Um, I got a flu bug or something over the last week, and uh, it's not COVID, tested negative. Um, I don't think I'm contagious anymore. Just letting you know, I don't think I'm contagious anymore, uh, but I, I don't have my voice back, so here we are. Now, for more than the last year, we have uh, bounced between sections of Genesis and Matthew, back and forth, one big section at a time. We finished Genesis in November, and then we did a brief Advent series on the theme of waiting in the Bible. We wrapped that up last week, and so today we're back to Matthew, picking up where we left off in chapter 11. And Matthew will occupy the majority of Sundays, apart from a little summertime in Job in the Old Testament, but then back to Matthew, and that'll occupy the rest of 2023. There was a book published last year written by Kristen Demez, professor at Calvin University, which was provocatively titled, Jesus and John Wayne. I'm just curious. Let me see a show of hands if you've heard of this. Jesus and John Wayne, just one, okay. Most of you haven't. That's all right. Uh, if the title, Jesus and John Wayne, is not provocative enough, the subtitle tells what the author is going to argue in the book. The subtitle is, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Essentially, Demez says that there has been an unhealthy emphasis on masculinity, a harmful kind of masculinity in American evangelicalism, sort of a John Wayneification of Christianity. I won't attempt a book review here. There are examples that Demez provides that are undeniably askew. Unhealthy, authoritative, power, hungry, weird. But there are other examples that she also thinks are askew, and someone like me would say that's pretty close to just biblical Christianity, and we just differ on what the Bible lays out for men and women. So if you do read it, read it with some discernment. But I bring it up because it came to mind this week as I was studying Matthew 11, I remember telling someone about this book when it first came out, and this person who hadn't read the book, hadn't heard of it, just remarked that the title, Jesus and John Wayne, seemed arbitrary. Arbitrary. What hath John Wayne to do with Jesus? And vice versa. It is a catchy title. It's undeniably provocative. But the Bible ties Jesus to a different John in some very important ways. John the Baptist. Have you heard of him? John the Baptist. We are on good ground, safe ground, to ask the question, what hath Jesus to do with John the Baptist? Or what hath John the Baptist to do with Jesus? That was a question that people were asking in the first century. It's a kind of question that John was even asking himself in asking of Jesus. 
And Jesus' answer to that question not only tells us about this more important John, John the Baptist, it not only tells us more about Jesus, but it actually tells us something about ourselves. So it's as relevant today as ever. Before I read our passage, let me just give you a quick overview of Matthew before chapter 11. Here are just the big sections of Matthew. Matthew 1 through 4, those chapters, well, those are the preparations for Jesus' ministry, his genealogy, his birth, his temptation, etc. Chapters 5 to 7, then, give us a long section of his teaching. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's one big package of teaching. Then Matthew 8 and 9 give us a grouping of miracle stories or healings. And then chapter 10, there Jesus teaches the disciples what they can expect in their ministry. In other words, suffering. They can expect that. And now in Matthew 11, and we'll see also in weeks ahead in chapter 12, we'll see various responses to Jesus. That's what's going on in this section. Various responses to Jesus, which are not all negative, but they are increasingly negative compared to what came before. Opposition to Jesus grows as his identity and mission become clearer. Matthew 11. Let's read the first 19 verses together. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, 
Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's ask three simple questions here, which really our passage asks and answers. The three questions are these. Who is Jesus? Who was John the Baptist? And how shall we respond? So first, who is Jesus? That's the question that John the Baptist has for Jesus, and so he sends his disciples out to ask Jesus directly. Are you the one, the one we've been waiting for, or shall we look for another? Now, if you're familiar with John the Baptist's role in the biblical story thus far, this doubt, this question he has for Jesus might come as a surprise. Jesus and John go back all the way, you could say. Jesus and John were cousins Their parents had both received angelic announcements about the importance of these two sons in God's plan. John understood his ministry to be one of preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. He said, one is coming after me who is greater than me. I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals. John identified Jesus at one point. It's in John chapter 1. He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As he pointed to Jesus. John was there in that Jordan River that day, not only baptizing Jesus, but afterward, seeing the Spirit descend upon him and hearing a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John heard that. John knows some things. And in our passage, it says that John had been still hearing of Jesus' many deeds, his many works, his miracles. So it doesn't seem obvious or likely that John the Baptist would have doubts about Jesus, but he does. Why? Well, there's some other things to consider. Like so many others in his day, John likely expected a certain kind of Messiah to come, a Davidic king-like ruler who would overthrow the Roman tyranny of the promised land. John expected this one to come to bring divine judgment, end-time final judgment. He said back in Matthew 3, As he introduced Jesus as the Savior, he also said, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His pitchfork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor. Now, when John said things like that, he wasn't wrong, but he was just wrong about the timing He didn't quite understand what we know now, that there was a first coming of Jesus, which didn't fully execute universal worldwide judgment, but there is a second coming of Jesus, which does just that. John, looking for a Davidic 
king-like, ruler of the nations, conquering his enemies, probably would have been a little surprised with Jesus' welcoming of sinners and healing the weak and the broken, or his sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And most relevant to John's doubt surely would be his present imprisonment. It was back in chapter 4 that we're just briefly told John was arrested and thrown into prison. It'll be in chapter 14 that we find out that he's actually executed. But as he sits in prison, who knows how long, he has to be wondering, if Messiah has come, if the day of the Lord has dawned, what am I doing languishing in prison as one of his servants. And so John sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And that's the question. That's the question of the ages. That's the question of God's people for millennia before. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first gospel promise, we call it. The proto-evangelium. What does that mean? It means first gospel. God promised that in the seed of the woman, eventually there will be an offspring to come who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And so God's people, since then, have been watching and waiting and looking and inspecting and wondering, is this the one or shall we wait for another? Adam and Eve likely thought of their first sons. Is is this the one, or shall we wait for another? Noah's father likely thought that Noah would possibly be the one, and he's not. They wait for another. And while they wait, the promises just keep building and adding up and, and, and getting bigger and bigger. Remember from Genesis, we weren't, it wasn't that long ago we were in Genesis. Remember chapter 49. God promised from the line of Judah there would come a lion-like ruler to rule over all the nations. We won't go through all the promises in the Old Testament that mention this one to come, but you think of this phrase, my servant, in the prophecy of Isaiah. What's he going to be like? He's going to rule the nations. He'll be born of a virgin. The government shall be on his shoulders. And and yet, he's a suffering servant. Who is this one to come? That's the question. And Jesus answers that question. Verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. And then he lists six different things. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Now, while that isn't a direct quote of any one Old Testament passage, it is a good summary list of many promises that are found in Isaiah, which describe the blessings that will accompany the arrival of this one to come. You can go looking for these references if you want, but it's in Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35 and in Isaiah 61 and in in Isaiah 42, which Everett read for us earlier. God says there, my servant will come and he will open the eyes of the blind. 
A whole day of new things will dawn. The, the, the former things of old will pass away. And those texts would have been very familiar to John and to his disciples. And those realities found in those texts are exactly what Jesus has been doing. That's what's recorded in Matthew 8 and 9, right before this. Lepers were cleansed, the lame walked, the blind saw, the dead were raised. And even Jesus' opponents didn't deny that those things really happened. They just said he probably does it with the power of Satan. But they didn't deny that it was actually happening. Those real, physical, miraculous healings are also symbolic of well, our spiritual malady that all of us have, that spiritual malady that Jesus came to heal, variously described in the Bible as like spiritual blindness or spiritual deafness or spiritual lameness or even spiritual death. Jesus came to provide healing for these spiritual sicknesses. And that's good news. That's good news. That's why that last phrase of what Jesus says there, of the six things he describes, he talks about good news to the poor. Poor physically? Eh, sometimes. But even more, poor in spirit, as he said in chapter 5. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty, he has come with a, a message of good news. That's what gospel means, good news. It's what he had been teaching and preaching, verse 1. It's, it's, what, it's what we teach and preach still today. It's, it's what we all need. It's the answer we're looking for. So Jesus' words and his works testify to who he is. Jesus essentially says to the disciples of John, go tell John what you hear and see. Remind him of the words and the works that I've performed that come right out of Isaiah's prophecy about the one to come. So Jesus indeed is that one to come, the long-awaited one, the answer, the fulfillment. And now that he has come, we don't need to look for another one. He's the perfect one. Now notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke John for his doubt, but he helps him out. He wants John to reason out what he already knows, what he's seen, what he's heard. He expects John to connect dots to reconsider those Old Testament prophecies that he's already heard, if not memorized. He wants John to, if necessary, reconsider what kind of Messiah was promised and what kind of Savior John and everyone else needs. He wants John to not be distracted by his imprisonment as if that was impossible and incongruous with, with the arrival of the Savior. No, this is a Savior who is the king, but he will reign through suffering. This is a Savior who will go to the cross 
before he rises from the dead. And so Jesus' last words to the disciples are an invitation, possibly a subtle rebuke to John, or at least a caution. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, not scandalized by me is literally what it means. Doesn't this encourage us? I think of a number of ways in which this this passage, John's doubt, Jesus' confirmation, encourages me. It encourages me that this stuff apparently is real, that this is historical. That you, if you were writing this from scratch, making it up wouldn't include the doubt of one of the key witnesses in the story, like John the Baptist. No, that's, that's negative. That's, well, it's real, right? We're all real here. We, even people like John the Baptist doubt. Even John the Baptist, with all he knew, with all he, he saw, he had a bout with doubt. So we shouldn't be surprised when we doubt. We shouldn't be surprised when our kids go through a season of doubt, when they have hard questions about their faith. But John also shows us what to do with those doubts. Bring them to Jesus. Bring your questions to Jesus. Bring your questions to the Scriptures. Be prepared for the Scriptures to give you answers. Not all the answers, but but certainly some. Enough that you can start connecting some dots. Enough that you can perhaps begin to think that this Jesus is not only historically real, but one to reckon with because of the claims that he made. So don't stop with honesty about your doubts before God, but but reason it out. Connect the dots. We have a credible faith. And don't let Your unexpected sufferings, your unjust sufferings in this life get in the way of trusting this Savior. Don't go looking for a different kind of Savior than the one that is. He simply is. He's not a wax nose for you to make into your own liking. That's who Jesus is. Secondly, let's ask who John the Baptist was. Who was John the Baptist? After Jesus answered the question of the disciples about who he is and what he came to do, he then turns to the crowd and teaches them about John the Baptist. Why? Well, I suspect, even though it's not explicit in the passage, that the whole crowd has heard this conversation between John's disciples and Jesus. And Jesus wants to make sure They don't question John's legitimacy. One thing we have to keep in mind here is just how popular and significant John the Baptist was in these days. At this point, John was likely more popular than Jesus. Hundreds and thousands had gone out into the wilderness to hear John preach, to preach a a heavy, hard message to be baptized by him. The ancient historian Josephus, he died in 
year 100 A.D., Josephus has about a half dozen paragraphs about John the Baptist. Did you know that? If you don't know who Josephus was, he was a Jewish historian, not a Christian. But his historical records have survived, and they are widely believed, believed to be enormously accurate. And everything that Josephus says about John the Baptist is completely consistent with everything that we read in the scriptures about John the Baptist, about his ministry, about his popularity, about his imprisonment, about his execution. So if it seems arbitrary to you for Jesus to take time here to tell the crowd about John the Baptist and for it to get recorded in our Bibles, well, that just proves that we're not living in the first century Judean world. And further, what Jesus says here about John regarding his importance just further supports and clarifies who Jesus is. Here's where it's going. This is the argument. If John is great, then the one to whom he pointed, the one for whom he prepared the way, is even greater. So let's reread some verses here, starting in verse 7, just to get our bearings again. They went away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, more than a prophet. Stop there. John the Baptist was no reed blown by the winds of popular opinion and mass appeal. No, he was resolute. He was no fancy pants like the courtiers of king's palaces he was a man of conviction. He was rugged, even harsh. He was crusty like his camel hair clothes. His message was primarily one of rebuke and repentance. And so his whole demeanor represented that. So, so Jesus is reminding these people that John was no flash in the pan. He was no showman. He, he was no, you know, uh, social media celebrity of the day, he's the real deal. He was a prophet like those prophets of old. Now, when we hear the word prophet today, we think of a crazy person with a sandwich board on the street corner, and they think God told them to be a prophet, or they think they've made themselves a prophet, but you're like, I'm not sure you're hearing from God at all. Well, Prophets in the Old Testament were actually the real movers and shakers. They were the king makers. They were the ones who heard from God and wrote it down, delivering it to the people. They were the ones, when necessary, to rebuke kings. So for Jesus to say that John is one of those prophets, that's quite a statement. But he goes further and says he's the final prophet of his kind. Verse 13, all the prophets and the law were prophesying until John. He's the last one of his kind. But Jesus goes further than that. He says he's more than a prophet, verse 9. He was, verse 10, the messenger. 
the messenger, a, d- a divine messenger, my messenger, that one messenger that was foretold in Malachi 3.1. Behold, God said there, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before me. He is Elijah to come, verse 14. And that also comes from Malachi. It's the book just to the left in our Bibles, even though it crosses over to the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament in our English Bibles is Malachi, and it ends with anticipation about Elijah to come. Before the Lord comes, Elijah will come. Now, Elijah was a mighty prophet of the Old Testament long before Malachi's day. So long after Elijah is dead, Malachi writes that Elijah is still to come. And then Jesus says, John the Baptist was that Elijah to come. But it's not Elijah back from the dead. What Jesus means and what Malachi meant is that John the Baptist is Elijah like. He's an Elijah-like prophet. Jesus claims even more than that for John. He, he says he was the greatest man to have ever lived up to that point. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. That's astounding. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is greater than Father Abraham, Moses, King David, the great prophet Isaiah. He's greater. He wasn't greater because John was a a miracle worker. He actually did no miracles. John wasn't greater than the ones before because he wrote more scriptures than we have in the Bible. John didn't write any scripture. John wasn't greater than those before him because of his eminent leadership responsibilities. No, he wasn't a king, wasn't a high priest. But John was greatest of his time up to that point for this reason. He had the unique privilege to be the one to announce and point to and specifically publicly identify the living, walking Messiah. Other prophets before would say, Messiah's gonna come and he's gonna be like this. He'll do that. John was unique in that he said, there, that's him. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world right there. That made John greater than all who came before him. And it says far more about Jesus then than it does about John. If someone introduces you, some of you work at Sandia Labs and you occasionally travel and you present a paper at a conference or something. And if you're, uh, if you're special enough, someone will introduce you. Jordan Carnahan. We'll just use him as an example. He's one of our deacons, and I'm sure he's presented papers on behalf of Sandia Labs before. Imagine a friend, a co-worker, introduced Jordan 
to his colleagues. And then Jordan got up and said, that man right there is the greatest man who's ever lived because he introduced me. (laughs) Now, Jordan would never say that. But that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. That's why we need to learn about John. That's why Jesus taught the crowd that day and why he teaches us through the scriptures today about John's greatness. It's so that we'd fully understand the surpassing greatness of the one to whom John was pointing. And yet, Jesus says another shocking thing right after The second half of verse 11, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, than John the Baptist. As privileged as John was in God's plan to identify and point to the Messiah, Jesus insists that every one of his followers now, even the weakest, the lowest, the dumbest, They are greater than John. It's mind-blowing. Who would think to make that up? Who who would come up with that unless, unless it's true? Christian, you know more about the Savior, Jesus, than John the Baptist did when he walked this earth. You Christian can tell the world more about Jesus than John could. You know more about the Redeemer than the greatest prophet of the old era. You're that privileged. Now, don't go around boasting about this. You probably don't want to go announce to the world that you're greater than the best Old Testament prophet. Now that would negate the very basis of your privileged position. Don't tell people that. Just live like it's true. Tell people about Jesus. What privilege to describe him to people who don't know him. What privilege. Why don't we? Why don't I? I'm sure it's in part that I've gotten too used to him. I don't spend enough time thinking about how glorious he is. And so he's not quick on my lips. And I'm not quick to share it with others. But, But if I thought more about who this is that I speak of, then why not? Connection to Jesus is what defines true greatness in this world. If we got a hold of that idea, how our outlook on life and this world and circumstances would be so different than it is, connection to Jesus is what determines greatness. Not degrees, not books in your library. I'm speaking to myself here. Not what's in the 401K. Not how many kids you have. How fancy the car is. How big the house is. What defines greatness? Connection to Jesus. Seeing him aright and representing him well to the world. 
Thirdly, let's ask how to respond or how not to respond. Really, both of those are here in our passage. Jesus has actually been calling for a response here and there throughout our passage. Each of the three sections we've worked through has an implied invitation. Like in verse 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or like in verse 15, where Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which was an old way of saying that just because you have ears doesn't mean you really hear. Just because you have hearing doesn't mean you're actually listening. So listen up. Hear him. Hear him. Our passage will end with uh, an implicit call to respond. Verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, if you doubt John, if you doubt Jesus, well, just look at their fruit, look at their disciples, look at their lives. This is how to respond. I think there's also an implied response back in verse 12. Did, did you notice how I conveniently skipped this confusing sentence in verse 12? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent Take it by force. There are several different interpretive options to this verse, not least because there are different ways to translate the original Greek. And the big interpretive divide is whether these sayings, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, whether to interpret them positively or negatively. So the ESV version that I'm reading here, it, it takes a, a negative interpretation of these verses, violence. And it's theologically true, right, even if it's not here in this passage. It's true. Violent people are against the kingdom of God. Violent people are trying to overtake it left and right. That's Psalm 2, right? The nations rage. They plot in vain. But there's also a possibility that this is to be taken positively. I spent hours on it this week. I got to about 70% or 80% confidence that we should interpret this positively, not negatively. So that interpretation would read something like this. The kingdom is moving ahead vigorously, and vigorous people are taking hold of it. I think that's what it's saying. That's an invitation, by the way. And that positive interpretation seems to fit best with the only other place in the whole New Testament where the same language is used. Luke 16, verse 16, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Here's the paradox of the gospel call. It's God's work, ultimately, he has to give ears to hear and eyes to see and, and cause dead hearts to live. And yet you and I have the responsibility to hear it, heed it, and take hold of it. The kingdom is advancing vigorously and some people are grabbing hold of it vigorously. 
Now, that's the kind of response that Jesus has already called for, a positive one. But verses 16 to 19, notice, there it shows us how not to respond to all this. And it's a stinging indictment. To what shall I compare this generation, Jesus says? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. This imagines kids playing one of two games, either a wedding game or a funeral game. Imagine three friends, and one says, let's play wedding. I'll be the pastor, and Jenny, you can be the bride, and Jimmy, you can be the groom. And Jimmy goes, boring. I'm not playing wedding, especially with her. And Jimmy sits there. And then the other person says, uh, well, the the same guy planning this all along. He he says, um, all right, let's play funeral. I'll be the pastor again. Jimmy, you play dead guy. We'll, we'll put you in a little spot in the dirt and you just sit there. And then Jenny's going to be the professional mourner. She's, she's going to just wail. And Jimmy goes, boring. That's what Jesus is getting at. His generation was like that. Like kids who wouldn't, who wouldn't play anything. They didn't like John for one set of reasons, and they didn't like Jesus for another set of reasons. Verse 18, John came neither eating nor drinking. They say, he is a demon. The son of man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Some unbelief is genuinely searching for answers. Some unbelief is like an open hand that hasn't yet clasped anything, but wants to. It's looking for what to clasp. But some unbelief is stubborn and silly, and it just makes excuses. It's like little bratty, lazy kids who make excuses to not play with their friends. That sounds too harsh. I just paraphrased Jesus. He came up with that analogy. Some didn't like John's ministry because John emphasized fasting and repentance. They thought it was too strict. And some didn't like Jesus because he was known for eating and welcoming sinners. He was known for celebrating their healing and restoration with God. They didn't like it. Some will always find an excuse, and then another excuse, and then another excuse to not believe Jesus. While others will see the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus, and even without every question possible being answered for them, they jump in. They grab hold of it. They make it their own. 
Now, we should make clear that Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard. Some people in his day wrongly gossiped that about Jesus, but, but Jesus was altogether sinless, even in his parties with sinners. But he was a friend of sinners. Here's how the gossip gets turned. It takes a truth, right, and then twists it and amplifies it and says something totally else. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Not a glutton, not a drunkard, but a friend of sinners. How wonderful that is. A friend of sinners. Is that a comfort to you? That Jesus is a friend of sinners. You say, well, I don't know. I'm not sure what the word sinner means. All right. Jesus is a friend of broken, messed up rebels who don't go God's way and come to the end of their rope. And Jesus welcomes them without any condition other than Believe on him, trust him, come to him and be changed by him. Or perhaps you hear friend of sinners and you think, well, that's a friend for someone else, not me. Luke 5 clarifies this so well for us. There the Pharisees say, what's with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? And it's there that Jesus says, well, the righteous don't think that they need repentance. It's the sick who go to the doctor. The well don't go to the doctor because they think they're well. It's not that anyone is well. It's that some people think that they're well, well enough. They don't need a spiritual physician. They don't need a savior. Jesus didn't come for them. He's not interested in them. He doesn't call them. He calls the broken, the hurting, those at the end of their moral rope and initiative. And he calls them. He welcomes them. He, yes, he calls them to repentance, but, but, but he, he befriends them. We love to sing around here that old hymn, Perhaps today this would even be your confession for the first time as you call out to Jesus. Perhaps you would, you would describe yourself like this and you would say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I, I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you say that and believe that, he will. He'll not only wash you, he'll befriend you and be with you to the end. But make no mistake, he's no pushover, this friend of sinners. He also refers to himself here as the son of man. The son of man. A phrase that goes back to Daniel 7, where Daniel had a vision of the heavenly courtroom. And with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man came to God, the ancient of days. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory, a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it shall not pass away. He has a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. I say again, this Jesus is who he is. Not a wax nose to make into your own liking. Not the kind of savior you think you need. He is the savior that is. And praise God, he happens to be the savior that we need. A friend of sinners. The glorious son of man who reigns on high forever. And to whom every knee will bow eventually. He's the king of kings. And lord of lords. So as you consider him, do not trifle with him. He's no chummy buddy. He's the son of man. And brothers and sisters, with that kind of authority, Jesus closes the book of Matthew with this commission. With all authority in heaven and earth, I send you out. Go into all the nations and make disciples. Let's pray for that. Oh Lord, we thank you again for your word. Thank you again for the Christ, the Savior, the Son of Man and friend of sinners that it reveals. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to see him aright. Help us to confess him boldly before a lost world. Help us, Lord Jesus, to represent you well in this world until this world one day is made new and you come again in glory to make all things right. We long for that day, and yet we wait with faith and patience and with our eyes on you. Amen.